Uh, we have been going through this series this semester called Bride of Christ. And uh, the reason we've done that is because the Bible talks about how the church is Christ's bride. Uh, the way that he, uh, God loves his church the way that a good husband loves uh, his wife. And so he's willing to uh, sacrifice for her. He's willing to uh, give everything for her, to protect her and to provide for her. And we saw that that's exactly what Jesus has already done for us, that he gave his life for us. And what I mean by that is simply uh, the gospel message. That, that we have been brought back to God, right? When you think about what a marriage is, what is it? It's a, a coming together of two, right? The Bible even teaches that uh, as the two come together, that they become one flesh. There's a very special union that, that happens there. And, and Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that what's going on at marriage is actually an illustration of the union that happens between Christ and his church. And, and so he, here's the, the gist of what, what happens there. We've been separated from God, Jesus came, took on, Jesus is God in the flesh. He lives a life that's perfect, that no one else could live, and he dies on the cross. And the reason he dies on that cross is because he's bearing the punishment for our sin. And so everything that, that we've done wrong, God, who's a just God that promises to punish all sin, he, he punishes it and puts it upon Jesus. And if we put our faith in Christ, then our punishment has been paid for. And we're able to be brought back to him, right? So it's not, just that, it's not just that our penalty has been paid, but because that penalty has been paid, the door has been open for us to come back to God. And so that's why uh, we are his bride, right? Because Jesus has sacrificed himself for us, and yet in sacrificing himself for us, he bought us and brought us to himself. And so what we've been looking at is, man, how do we uh, operate as a good bride? We know that we have an awesome husband. But if, if we want to be a good wife, what does that look like? And so uh, we've looked at these different aspects of, of the acronym WIFE, conveniently, uh, of, that describe this is what the church should be doing. This is what our lives should look like. And so we started off by talking about God's word, and we talked about worship as well, and saying, man, we need to be people that let our minds be shaped by the word of God. We need to know the Bible. We need to let it be what directs our worldview. And then we talked about worship and how worship is really just about bringing glory to God and that we can do that in everything that we do. We talked about intercession and how important it is for us to be people that pray, right? Uh, if you talk to anybody about marriage, they'll always tell you how important communication is. Well, prayer is our ability to communicate with God, and we need to take advantage of that constantly. We also talked about fellowship, that, that uh, we have been bought collectively, okay, as a church. And so God cares very much about us being uh, brought close together, having deep, meaningful relationships with each other, where we help each other. Christianity is not supposed to be a solo thing. And then last week, we talked about evangelism. Just this idea that, man, this beautiful relationship that we've entered into with Jesus, it's not for us only. It's for us plus everybody else that we can tell, right? Like, like when Jesus died, he did so for the sins of the world. And, and so we need to be people, people that go and take that offer of salvation out everywhere that we go. And so we finished up our WIFE acronym, but we've been enjoying the series, and this was planned from the beginning anyway, but I've still been enjoying the series. Um, I'm going to give you another acronym that we're going to go through for the next couple weeks, and that's MRS. And... Uh, to introduce our M concept, I actually want to show you a short video. It's a story that I learned when I was a kid, but it always stuck with me. So I'm going to uh, show you this video, and then we'll dive into what we've got for today. This is an old story, but it reminds us of the surprises we can get when even a small number like two is multiplied by itself many times. 
King Sharam of India was so pleased when his grand vizier Sisa Bendar presented him with the game of chess that he asked Bendar to name his own reward. The request was so modest that the happy king immediately complied. What the grand vizier had asked was this, that one grain of wheat be placed on the first square of the chessboard, two grains on the second square, four on the third, eight on the fourth, 16 on the fifth square, and so on, doubling the amount of wheat on each succeeding square until all 64 squares were accounted for. When the king's steward had gotten to the 17th square, the table was well filled. By the 26th square, the chamber held considerable wheat, and a nervous king ordered the steward to speed up the count. When 42 squares were accounted for, the palace itself was swamped. Now fit to be tied, King Sharam learns from the court mathematician that had the process continued, the wheat required would have covered all India to a depth of over 50 feet. Incidentally, laying this many grains of wheat end to end also does something rather spectacular. They would stretch from the earth, beyond the sun, past the orbits of the planets, far out across the galaxy to the star Alpha Centauri, four light years away. They would then stretch back to Earth, back to Alpha Centauri, and back to the Earth again. All right. You didn't know you were going to be in math class this morning. No. Um, I remember I was a little kid when I learned that story. I don't think they told us all this stuff about the star. But uh, I remember just being struck by the power of multiplication. And uh, if you haven't guessed what M is, it's multiplication. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, so before we dive more into this, let's just pray together and uh, we'll get into it. God, we love you. And uh, it is so good to just be together in your presence. God, we thank you that you are here. Lord, we thank you that you want to teach us through your word. God, we pray that you would do that. I pray that you would use my words this morning, Lord, that you would just use them in whatever way you please, Lord, whether that's to convict or to encourage or whatever it is that you want to do. Lord, I just want to submit myself to your will. I pray that you'd free our minds from any distractions, that you'd help us to focus on getting to know you better and learning how we can follow you more faithfully. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And we lift this prayer up in your son's awesome name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> when I talk about multiplication, what exactly do I mean, at least in, in the sense of what I'm going to be speaking about this morning? When I use the word multiplication, I'm going to be talking about the idea of reproducing the life of Christ in other people. Or the idea of making disciples, okay? Taking yourself and multiplying yourself. Now, uh, there's a, a lot of crossover between the idea of uh, making disciples and evangelism, like we talked about last week. As a matter of fact, the, the goal of evangelism is multiplication. Evangelism is simply just the first step in it. So we, just, we took a long time last week to talk about how important it is for us to take that first step and to get out and to start sharing our faith. Well, today I want to kind of expand on that idea. And it's like, okay, let's not just stop at going and sharing the gospel, 
But, but how do we move to the, the point of saying, okay, I'm going to reproduce everything that I know about following Jesus, all that I've learned, and, and, and try to transfer this into a life of another person. Of course, that has to start with salvation, but it doesn't end there. And so discipleship becomes this long process of learning to live in the manner that Jesus lived, learning to observe all that he commanded, right? And this is actually what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. Uh, we think a lot about evangelism, and we should, but we have to remember that the goal of evangelism is not just share the gospel, it's to make disciples. Look at what Jesus said here in the Great Commission. This is one of the last things he said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, there's a few things I want to draw out there. The first thing is, I love how Jesus starts off this statement. All right? He wants to remind you who this is coming from. All authority has been given me in heaven and earth. So how much authority does Jesus have? Uh, all of it. Okay, all. And, and not, just, not just on earth. That'd be pretty good, even by itself. But all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. So if somebody who has all the authority in heaven and earth tells you something, it would probably be wise to listen to them, right? Like this isn't just somebody's opinion or just some dude off the street or you can take it or leave it. No, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. So whatever is about to come next, you better listen to this really closely because it's very, very important. And so what does, he, what does he give? He says, the command is to go and make disciples. Okay, so in order to make disciples, I think that we first need to figure out what exactly is a disciple. Well, a disciple is a follower or an apprentice. Um, it it's, communicates the idea of this, this person that's walking in the footsteps of another person. You're, you're following along in the same path that they did. And I think that somehow we've lost the idea in Christianity that making disciples is what it's really about. We feel really good sometimes when maybe we can get somebody to pray a certain prayer or say a certain thing or maybe even to show up in church. But that's not making disciples. Those are all great things that, that can be part of the process of making disciples. But in and of themselves, that's not the end goal. Jesus, his goal is not just to have a bunch of people sit in church on Sunday morning, okay? If that was, the NFL is doing a way better job, right? They, they pack their stadiums out every week. So we can learn from them. We could probably produce a better product. But uh, no, no, that's not the goal. The goal is to make disciples. Now, um, there's no doubt that saying that you believe in Jesus is a good thing. But that belief has to, sh should result, if it's genuine belief, should result in obedience, right? And so that's why we see this step of, hey, go make disciples. And what do you say? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is that idea of conversion, right? That the first step of obedience that a person takes in getting saved is that they become baptized. That's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So we see that if a person gets converted and gets baptized, it should result in obedience, and these disciples are supposed to be made of all nations, right? So he's not even just saying, hey, go get the word out and whatever happens, happens and just kind of like get people to pray a prayer and your job is done. No, I want you to make disciples. That's a hard process. That's a life on life type process. Jesus invested three years into his disciples, helping them understand what it looks like to live a life faithful to God. And now he says, I want you to go and do that to all nations. How in the world are they going to be able to accomplish that? Now, there's no way that they would have been able to do this on their own. 
But that's why I also love the way that Jesus ends this, right? He started it by talking about his power, and he ends it by talking about his power. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. She says, hey, I'm giving you this monumental task, but I'm going to be with you. And so he's modeled for us already what this process looks like, right? Jesus preached to a lot of big crowds and all that kind of stuff, but, but where were those crowds at the crucifixion? You know, Jesus died relatively lonely. There, there were a few followers that were left, even his own apostles scattered, at least for the moment. They, they lacked so much belief, even though Jesus told them that this was going to happen, that they were still in disbelief for a while about the, the resurrection. As a matter of fact, Thomas uh, said, e- even after all of his best friends just told him, hey, we saw Jesus. He wasn't there. He said, I'm not going to believe until I, I literally put my hands in his hands and in the hole in his side. So we, we see, man, there is, is so much to be overcome here. There's, there's so much doubt to be overcome. And yet they went and they made disciples. And they did it by the, the same process that Jesus did with them, investing. It's an ever-sustaining uh, process, right? Because if you make disciples, do you know what part of making a disciple is? That that disciple goes and makes more disciples, And then the disciples of that person go and make more disciples. And the disciples of that person go and make more disciples. And so even though they didn't have all the same advantages that we have today, like they they couldn't start a blog and they couldn't make a movie or anything like that, the gospel spread like crazy. Because every disciple understood that being a disciple meant making other disciples. This is what Dawson Trotman, he was the founder of The Navigator, said about this. The gospel spread to the known world during the first century without radio, television, or the printing press because the early church produced Christians who were reproducing. It's, it's honestly that simple. Christians that, if every Christian understands that part of being a disciple is to make other disciples, that will be way more effective than any sort of mass evangelism strategy that we could ever come up with. There's no substitute for this. Imagine what the world would look like. Like mo- Most of us, I-, I-, I think, if I'm being honest, sit on the sidelines. And we-, we don't really try to invest our lives in others with helping them to know Jesus. We get sidetracked by a million other things. We let so many other things become so much more important. And it's not that we don't have anything else to do, right? It's not like investing in the 12 apostles was the only thing that Jesus did. But as I said before, all those crowds and stuff, they scattered. You know why Christianity spread? Because of the the men that Jesus invested deeply in went and invested deeply in others. That was what did it. So true disciples multiply. Uh, Look look at what, uh, this was Jesus' process all along. This was always his plan. Look at what he said, even here. This comes from Mark chapter 3, early in the ministry of Jesus. It says, and he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. So early in his ministry, Jesus selects these twelve guys. And he says, these are guys that I'm going to invest in in a very, very special way. And so we see that first part of the process there is that they would be with him. And they were with him, right? Like these guys went everywhere with Jesus. They got to to learn everything about his life. They got to see him heal people. They got to hear everything that he had to teach. They got to see the way that he managed his money. They got to see the places that he would sleep. They, They got to observe what his prayer life looked like. 
Every bit of, of what the, the way that Jesus lived, these guys got to observe it. But notice that being with him wasn't just the only end, right? It says, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. You see, by living with him, Jesus was preparing the apostles to go and to be able to, to get engaged in ministry. It wasn't just stay. It's come, stay, learn, and go. And that's exactly what they did. Now, I have to ask, would the disciples have multiplied themselves the way they did if they hadn't spent all that time with Jesus? And just think about it. Think about what they went through, right? Because they, they, Jesus was murdered. He rises from the dead. But there's, there's still not that many people. Jesus appeared to other people, but there's not that many that know this. And they face fierce opposition, right? You read the book of Acts, you start to see that uh, people want to stamp out Christianity immediately. Uh, the, the powers that be uh, are, are not in favor of this religion spreading. And so they get put in jail, they get driven out of towns. Would they have been willing to withstand all of that if all they heard was one dazzling sermon? Would they have been willing to withstand that if all they had was, was one conversation with one of these guys? One conversation with Jesus. Maybe it would have. I don't know. Only the Lord knows. But I can tell you that these guys lasted for the long haul. Every one of them except for Judas. And there was a reason why Judas was selected. But all the other 11 remained faithful all the way to death. And I think that's because Jesus built deeply into them. It's a marathon strategy rather than a sprinting one to decide that I'm going to invest deeply in others, who I know are going to invest deeply in others as well. So if, if Jesus believed in the strategy of multiplication, I believe that we should too. And I know it's crazy, but Jesus said that it's actually better for him to go than it was for him to stay. What? Look at what he said here in John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is telling his disciples, this is shortly before the time he's about to be betrayed. Hey, it's actually better that I go. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And you know what the Holy Spirit's going to come and do? He's going to empower you guys for ministry. And as the Spirit gets into you and empowers you for ministry, you are going to be able to take this message way further than, than Jesus could in the flesh, right? Jesus was God, but remember, he was also human. That means that he was limited in space and time. He could only be in one place at one time. But, but if the Spirit comes and it starts to empower his believers, what happens? They can scatter throughout the earth, right? And that's what he wants. He said, go make disciples of all nations. He cared about more than just the people in Jerusalem and in Judea hearing about this. He cared about the world. And that's why he says, hey, it's actually better that I go because the Spirit's going to come. And the Spirit's going to work in you to multiply. I love what J.D. Greer, is a pastor in North Carolina, has to say about this. He says, we still think the world will be won by a few hyper-anointed super-Christians who gather large crowds in big buildings. But Jesus said that a spirit-filled church would be infinitely more effective than that, even if that one hyper-anointed individual was Jesus himself. And he says, see John 14, 12. John 14, 12, the verse he's referencing there is when Jesus talks about the fact that his uh, followers would do greater things than him. A and how can you do greater things than Jesus? He literally defeated sin and death. You, you can't top that, right? But, but what 
can his followers do that's greater? What we've done collectively in scale of reaching people that we've been able to do better. Why? Because the Spirit has empowered us to go in to take the gospel to the whole world. You see, the early church got this. And so they continued this multiplication strategy of Jesus. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote to one of his disciples, Timothy. He said, The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right? There's, there's four generations that's going on there, right? He says that you've got Paul, and he's been discipling Timothy, and now he's preparing Timothy. He said, hey, everything that I've invested in you, I want you to invest it in other people. But even there, he said, be careful. Choose the right people. Because the ones that you invest in, you better choose them to make sure that they're people that are going to go invest in others as well. So you have to ask yourself, are you the kind of person that Timothy would have invested in? If Paul, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, you're in the church in Ephesus, that's the church that Timothy pastored, and so he's deciding, man, who are the people that I'm going to invest in? Would your name come to his mind? Would he know that you're going to be one that's faithful to go and carry this on to others? I urge you to make a commitment today to not be the person that stops the, the progress of the gospel, okay? The gospel is going to go forth no matter what. But man, don't, don't be somebody that sits there holding the baton and never moving with it. You guys all like the Olympics? Has anyone been watching the Olympics so far this week? Okay, not many Olympic fans here. But regardless of the fact that you don't like the Olympics, I trust that you know what a relay race is. Does everyone know what a relay race is? Okay, good. Everyone knows what a relay race is. Um, now, you, you get the idea, right? You're running along, and it's a team race. It's not about one person. And so it's one person runs their leg, and what do they do? They hand a baton off to the next person. And that, they, they need to work on that transition. They need to make sure it's good. And that next person needs to run as fast as they can. Their whole team is counting on them. The whole team needs everybody to run well. Now imagine if you had this team that was just knocking it out of the park. And all of a sudden they got to this one person. They hand them the baton. And the person just stands there with it. They don't move. They, they'd be letting their entire team down. The, the team had set out for a goal, right, to win this race. And, and when it got to this person that, hey, we, we're entrusting you to go with this. And they just stand there and do nothing. What does that do to the mission of that team? It completely destroys it. There are people in your life, you're in this room right now, so at least on some level, someone's handing a baton to you right now. Are you going to just stand there with it or are you going to go and pass it to somebody else? Are you going to continue to move with it? Man, I encourage you, be somebody that, that is never that guy that just stands there with the baton. Always be looking to move forward. If multiplication was the strategy of Jesus, and it was the strategy, strategy of the early church, then why does addition seem to be our strategy today? And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the average Christian, I think, is generally more interested and more satisfied in addition. And a lot of the way that looks is um, it's, it's the professional Christian's job to go and, and gather people, right? Uh, so my job is to sit and be a part of the church, and then they'll go out and they'll keep finding people and add them in, and that, that's, that's pretty much 
all that it looks like, right? Or even if it, on an individual level, if I'm being faithful to go out and reach people, I just kind of want to add a person here, add a person here, add a person here that I can say, oh yeah, that person's coming to church because of me. That person knows Jesus because of me. But I'm kind of satisfied and I stop there with that. I think that we're way too content with addition and that we oftentimes aren't really that interested in what happens with those other people. Are they going to be multipliers? If I've brought somebody to know Jesus, if I've helped introduce them to know Jesus, are they going to go and multiply that into somebody else? And here's why I think that we're oftentimes satisfied with addition. Because addition satisfies our own glory just fine, right? If what I want is pats on the back, that I've brought people into the church or my church is growing or anything like that and I can see those numbers going up, great. I can trace that back to myself directly. Everyone can praise me. Everyone can think that I'm awesome. Multiplication it doesn't really work that way, right? Like, man, I may have brought this person to know Jesus, but then that person knows someone else to know Jesus, and that person brings someone else to know Jesus. Well, that's awesome. All these people are going to know Jesus, but guess what? I can't wave my flag and tell everybody, oh, I brought this person, this person, this person in. Because God's been using other people in that process. I think there's a lot of reasons why we, why we value addition over multiplication, but, but here, here's four. First off, we're impatient. <clears throat> multiplication takes time, right? Remember from the rice video? It starts out really small. When, uh, when he talked to, the, or sorry, it was grain in that video, but uh, when he talks out to the king, he sees, oh yeah, it's so little, of course, I'm not even going to think about it. Yeah, I'll give it to you, right? Start, and it's one, one grain of wheat the first day, two the next, four the next. It's, it's no big deal. But eventually, if you give it time, it gets huge, right? When, uh, when God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. How many children did God give Abraham that were of that promise? Now, yeah, Abraham went and he had Ishmael, which he wasn't even supposed to do, but of the promise, how many did he give him? One, Isaac. You're going to make me a father of many nations. Why'd you only give me one kid and why'd you wait till I was a hundred to do it? And then you're going to go ask me to sacrifice him too. But guess what happened? God made Abraham a father of a great nation, right? Many nations. So, so, so Isaac has these kids and they start to spread out, right? They multiply. And God's promise comes true. The thing is, we don't always get to see the fruit of it. Did Abraham get to see the, the many that he would be the father of? Not in the flesh, no. He saw that one son, Isaac. And so if we commit ourselves to multiplication, we may not always get to see the massive fruit that we hope to see in our lifetimes. But we have to be faithful, right? Hebrews 11 talks about all these guys that were so faithful. And it talks about, man, a lot of these guys, they died before they even got to see the promise that they were working towards. Another reason that we are fine with additional multiplication is because we don't trust God. Multiplication works so long as it's a process that keeps going, right? I talked about handing the baton off. So, so when we invest in somebody, we have to trust that God's going to keep this movement going. It's like, man, if I build into a disciple deeply and I continue to pray for them, is God going to make this, make this go on? And we have to relinquish some control. And we hate not being in control. At least I do. I hate not being in control. And this goes for the same thing. We, we don't trust other people, right? If I invest deeply in you, how do I know that you're actually going to go in and get somebody else? I don't know you will. So I guess I'll just invest in you shallow, you shallow, you shallow, you shallow, and you shallow. And that way I can make sure it's get, that the gospel is getting out to people. 
But it's all going to stop after that because none of those people were ever truly discipled. So I have to trust that people are going to carry on what I've taught as I've deeply invested in them. And then finally, I've already talked some about this. We want all the glory. And addition is really easy to point back to our glory. You know, you think about this. Which church gets greater recognition? The one that has 10,000 people that come to it. Maybe the church has been around for 20 years. It's got 10,000 people going to it. Awesome. That's great. I celebrate that. Um, What about the the different church that's a 200-person church and it it plants five churches over that 20-year period? And within that time period as well, those five churches each plant another five churches, and then those five churches at each plant another five churches. So you've got 125 churches. And even if one, all these churches, they're just tiny little 200-person churches, kind of like us, that's 25,000 people as, as opposed to that one 10,000 church. Now, guess what? That church that has 10,000 people, that's the one that's going to be in the news. They're going to be in magazine articles. People are going to be visiting them and awing over everything they do. But which one is actually having the greater kingdom impact? The one that chose to multiply. It's the same with you on an individual level. If you, over this, this next year, if you were to lead 10 people to Christ, that would be amazing. Celebrate that. Right? But, but would you rather have that or would you rather lead two people to Christ who are going to lead two people to Christ who are going to lead two people to Christ who are going to lead two others to Christ? You know, if you lead the 10, you're going to be known as a pretty awesome evangelist. People are going to be congratulating you a lot. But if you have those two faithful ones that make two more faithful, make two more faithful, guess what? God's name is glorified. And so what I would say about this is that multiplication shows that you're probably focused on God's glory and his kingdom. Addition might mean that you're focused on your own glory and your own kingdom. Now, given the effectiveness of multiplication, the fact that it doesn't bestow a ton of glory on one person, doesn't it make sense that this is God's method to reach the world? It's effective and it robs us of that glory hunger that we have because we're such, we, we always want the praise, right? But God says, no, 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 I want the praise. And you're going to be better off if I get it too. So here's how we're going to do it. I want everybody to be faithful rather than having a few people here that are special. Now, there's no doubt that multiplication is important. It's the fuel by which long and sustained movements continue forward. J.D. Greer already quoted him once. I'm going to quote him again here. He says, Long-term movements are not built by swelling crowds, even when Jesus is the one doing the gathering. They come only as we take time to replicate our faith in someone else's heart. So if this is true, if, we've, if I've sold you on this fact, that multiplication is vital, that it was the strategy of Jesus, that it was the strategy of the early church, then how do we do it? How can we get started with this? Well, um, I want to take you through this square. Uh, You can call it a multiplication square. Um, This comes from a ministry called 3DM, a guy named Mike Breen. This isn't my idea, but you can find this stuff in a lot of different places. But basically, it's just kind of this idea that there's four different stages of training somebody up in something. So uh, you, you can apply this to specific tasks um, like I could apply this to saying, hey, this is how I'm going to teach somebody to share the gospel, to go out and share the gospel, and I can do that. Um, but you can also just apply this to the idea of, man, if I'm trying to build a faithful disciple, which is what Jesus did, right? When you talked about Jesus, what did he say? Every, as I hear the Father, I do. So the way that Jesus lived was what? In complete and utter obedience to the Father. And so ultimately, 
what Jesus was training his disciples to do was to live in complete and utter obedience to the Father. That's the main thing here. So I'm going to use some examples from Jesus's ministry, and uh, they're not all going to be focused on the same exact thing. Uh, but it's not a task. It's not like he's necessarily teaching them how to walk on water or teaching them how to multiply fish. But what he is doing is he's teaching them how to have faith in God and to live obediently, okay? And that's ultimately what you want to be doing as a disciple maker as well. So the first stage of this discipleship square is the I do, you watch stage. And uh, this is kind of an easy part to some degree. This is where you get to talk a lot if you're the one that's leading, um, so if you're like me, you like this stage. Yeah, you, you, just get, you start out teaching, and the learner is just doing a lot of observation. And so this was early in Jesus' ministry, this is what's happening. The, Jesus, the disciples are tagging along with them. They're getting to hear everything they say, and they're watching them heal these people. They're, they're pretty much just there, and they're getting to witness a lot of awesome stuff. They're, they're seeing how Jesus does it. Um, it's pretty easy for the leader because they're already doing what they were doing anyway. They're just taking somebody along with it and making sure that they understand it. And then it's pretty easy for the learner because they're just tagging along and seeing. They're not, they're not really being challenged to move anywhere yet. Um, so if I was going to, to use an example, if I was training somebody to do evangelism, this would be where it's like, hey, we're going to go share the gospel together. You just sit there. You don't have to say a word. Just watch me. I'll start the conversation. I'll ask all the questions. I'll answer all their questions. Like, whatever. Just sit here and watch. That's, that's stage one. The next is the I do, you help. So now we're starting to uh, move a little bit more responsibility into that learner. This is where that person's getting a little bit more involved. And we see this when uh, Jesus did this with the feeding of the 5,000. This is what Matthew 14, 15 through 21 says. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness and it is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, so this is a great example of stage two. Jesus is getting the disciples involved here, right? And so what do we see some characteristics of the learner in this stage? First off, the learners felt some responsibility. They recognized what was going on with the crowd. Hey, Jesus, these people are getting hungry. So first off, they, they bring the fact to Jesus that these people need to eat, okay? Uh, they also get to take part in what's going on. So Jesus is still the one that uh, multiplies the fish and the loaves. But what does he do? He tells them, bring the food to me. And then he lets them go and distribute it. So there's some sort of involvement that they have going on in this process. Now this stage becomes a lot more difficult for both the leader and the learner. Why? Because the leader has to learn to involve people in something that he could do better himself. Um, Jesus could have just been like, oh, you guys aren't hungry anymore. And just like magically filled their, their stomachs with food. No, but, but he chose to involve the disciples in this process. And so as a leader, this takes patience because you're, you're going to have to know, okay, even though I could, might be able to do this better on my own, I'm going to invest the time that's necessary to involve this other person. And for the learner, this is harder. Why? Because you're starting to get challenged to actually have to go and do something, whereas before you were just observing. 
So you can expect there to be some difficulty, some frustration, and some failure in this, in this stage. Um, to use my example of evangelism, if I was taking somebody else and we, out and we were in stage two, I'd say, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll go ahead and start the conversation because that's probably what most people have the most difficult time with. I'll kind of even start to set it on a trajectory. But I want you to hop in at points, okay? I want you to interject here. And I'll tell you what, if you don't, I'm going to put you on the spot. And uh, I'm going I'm to say, oh, that's a good question. What do you think about that, Jimmy? You know, something like, right? I'm going to get you involved. Okay, and that's what Jesus did with the disciples here. Let's move to stage three. This is you do, I help. So now it's time for the other person to take the lead. Uh, your job is to empower them and to help them where they need it. Uh, right after Jesus fed the 5,000, this is literally right after it, we're going to go on and see how Jesus moved his uh, disciples to stage three. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already over a mile from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered, command me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. Okay, this is a great example of stage three leadership here. In this account, uh, we see that the, the learner is starting to take a lot more initiative, right? Uh, Peter sees Jesus out there, and, and he steps on the water. Matter of fact, it's even his own idea, his faith is building, right? He just saw Jesus feed all these, these guys. He sees that Jesus is walking out there. He's starting to realize it's the power of God that's allowing him to do this. Maybe it will allow me to, too. So maybe, let's take a risk here. I'm going to give an, get this idea. If it's you, call me out there. So Peter comes up with the idea. And Jesus is like, all right, cool. Come on out. And so Peter steps out. The leader, Jesus, gives him the opportunity. And what happened to Peter? Well, Peter fell, right? Did it for, he did it for a little bit, but then he fell. And Jesus let him fall, right? That's an important part of stage three leadership. And this is, I, I'll admit right now, I am bad at this. I need to grow in my stage three leadership because, as I said before, I have control problems. So I, uh, I want to control the outcomes of everything. But Jesus was, was looking long-term and he realizes, you know what, I can stop Peter from sinking here. But if I do, his faith isn't going to be built in the way that it needs to. So I'm going to let him sink. Now, as I said, this is, this is you do, I help. Now, he was there to help. He made sure Peter didn't drown, right? He, he, he put his hand out and, and picked him up when, when he needed it, but he let him start drowning first. And, and this is what we need to learn to do. This, I think, as a, a leader, is probably the most difficult stage because you have to sit there and be willing to let the person that you're discipling start to fail a little bit 
But that's what they're going to grow so much from, right? Jesus pulled them out of the boat, and what happens? Immediately as they get back, he rebukes them for his lack of faith. And then what does it say? That they're all astonished, and it says, truly, you are the Son of God. Their faith was built through this exercise. Mike Breen, the guy who came up with a lot of this 3DM material, said this. We need to get out of the culture of excellence that besets the church and that messes up our opportunity to grow people. We think, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Or, this is God, uh, this is for God, so we might give him our best. Wrong. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Because unless you do it badly, you'll never do it well. It means you're not giving people the opportunity to engage and grow. People can't come into something brand new and be masters of the process immediately. That's impossible. Man, that's tough. Now, there is an aspect of, yeah, we, we want to do what we do excellently. Like, that's what we're working towards. But there have to be these moments that we give people to fail when we're leading them. And just like Jesus was there for Peter, we need to be there with our hand as they're drowning and say, okay, I'm going to pull you back up. This is, you need strong relationship here to make this happen. This person needs to know that you're going to be able to trust, that they trust you, right? And so I'm going to go do this, but I know that you're going to be there to help me. So to go back to my evangelism example, if I was taking somebody out at this point and say, all right, this is your show. Like, you're going to be the one that initiates. And you're going to be the one that sets the tone for this conversation. And it might be painfully awkward. They might be terrible at introducing themselves to another person. And they might be stuttering left and right and have no idea how to ask a question. And I have to sit there and let that happen, okay? Why? Because if I never take my hands off the bike, they're never going to learn to ride on their own. So it's hard, but it's it's important. Finally, the last stage is the you do, I watch stage. At this point, the learner has become fully competent, and the leader's input is minimal, This is really where Jesus and his disciples had gotten by the time of the Great Commission. They had spent these three years with him. They learned so much about what it means to live a faithful life. Obviously, seeing Jesus in the resurrection was, I think, the the crowning achievement there of finally building their faith to a spot where they were going to be ready and faithful. All they were waiting on now was that empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which would come soon thereafter. And, uh, man, at this point, You'll notice your square shape, it's complete, right? So as the leader, it's your time to go start a new square with somebody else. And guess what? If you're the learner, you've completed it around. You're ready to become a leader. You're ready to go invest in somebody else at this point. So if, to go back to my evangelism example, uh, at, at this, if, when a person's at this spot, I'm ready to uh, have them initiate the conversation. I'm ready to have them lead the conversation. Remember how when I took them out the first time, I just sat there, I had them sit there silently and just listen to what I did? Now I get to do that for them. I'm just going to sit there silently and listen to what they do. And as I realize that they've got the hang of it, and I only step in if absolutely necessary, um, it's like, cool, you, you're ready. You're ready, to, you're ready to go start taking other people. And I'm going to go start the square off with somebody else. So, in the words of Dawson Trotman, the navigator's guy, I would ask you, who is your man? Who is your woman? Who is the person that you're investing in? Whatever it is, that as you're trying to live a faithful life for Jesus, who is it that you're investing in to help them know Jesus better and follow him more faithfully? 
I want to ask you the question, and, and I want you to answer this honestly. Do you really want to reproduce? Okay, and I'm not talking about the way some of you want to reproduce. Spiritually, do you want to reproduce? If the answer is no, then I think that you really need to search your heart to see if you're a Christian. I mean that honestly, because the, the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's inside of you, there is no way that he's not going to be pushing you to multiply, okay? Now, I, I'm not saying you're not a Christian if uh, you've never done this before or anything like that, but I'm saying if you don't even desire to reproduce in any way, now, I don't know your heart, but, but I, would, I would encourage you to really search that. Now, if you say, yes, I, I do, I, I really do want to invest in others, I really do want to reproduce spiritually, then, I, then, then take the initiative to make it happen. You know, you, you need to go and find people to invest in, okay? Uh, we try and set this up for you sometimes here with the well, but, but we don't want the well to be the only thing that you ever count on, right? That the, the point of that is actually to teach you a lifestyle of discipleship. There are people all around you that, that need to be discipled. And, and like I said, evangelism is actually the first step in discipleship. So you say, well, I don't know who to start with. Well, maybe the best person to start with is your friend that doesn't know Jesus. So you start evangelism, and then you disciple them into maturity. And I would also tell you this. Pray about the person, like pray about who you should be investing in. You do have limited capacity, so you need to know, man, how many can I handle? Who can I handle? And, and when I, I, we read that passage earlier about Jesus going and selecting the 12 apostles. You know what he did before that? prayed all night. He prayed all night. And with that, he was able to go and select the men that he would go and invest in. And you know what? Even one of them was bad. Which leads me to my next point, which is don't be discouraged if there's times that things don't go the way that you want to. Okay? Um, You only have so much power. Okay? You cannot transform the heart of another person. And there are times that you are going to invest in people and it's just not going to work out. They might, they might even betray you. Literally, that's what Judas did to Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus, God in the flesh, spent three years investing in this man. And what did he do? Literally betrayed him to be crucified. Okay? If you feel like you've gotten burned trying to invest in somebody before, you're like, oh, you know, it didn't work out or whatever. Don't let that stop you. It's happened to all of us. Anyone who invests faithfully that's happened to. You read Paul's letters, you can see that that's a guy that had been burned plenty of times too. But he kept going. And I also encourage you to be patient. Man, discipleship can be a slow process. Sometimes it's not always easy to measure the growth that you want to see. And in those times that you're getting impatient, I encourage you to just think about how patient God has been with you how patient has he been with you in discipling you? How patient has he been with you and seeing you grow over the years? Man, I, I sat here as I was preparing this sermon and I, and I thought like, man, I am so thankful that I serve a patient God. Like what the, what was I doing? Like in my, like, like how has he even used me in the ways that he has? Because I feel like I'm learning all the time. And I'm sure that hopefully 10 years from now, I'll think the same thing because I hope I'm still learning all the time. Ten years from now. Now, thinking that you are going to reproduce spiritually, though, without taking the initiative, I mean, it's almost like thinking you're going to reproduce physically without taking the initiative. Right? Like, you're not just going to wake up pregnant, unless you're Mary. 
Um, right? Like, like there, there has to be some sort of initiative that you take. And I think a lot of us, we just sit around like, ah, oh, well, you know, if somebody comes my way or whatever else. You, you, you know what? That, that's not what Jesus did. What did he say? Jesus went up on the mountain. He called them to himself. Right? He'd go, he'd find these people and say, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He took initiative in finding people to disciple. And if you want to multiply, you need to f- take initiative in finding people to disciple. Stop waiting for somebody else to do it for you. Get out there and go. Now, a, a quick word about things that can hinder us from reproducing. Uh, when you think about physical reproduction, there are three things that can hinder you from that. One would be a lack of union, okay? Uh, we'll just leave it at lack of union. I think you can figure out what that means. Um, another one would be dysfunction, and another one would be immaturity. So when I say lack of union, um, obviously, if you don't unite with another person, there's no way that you're going to reproduce. Um, we need to be united with Christ first before there's any way that we could reproduce a disciple. It's completely impossible. So the first thing you have to realize is, man, I need to be united with Christ. So first, that means being a Christian. And if you are a Christian, it also means abiding with him, right? So like, imagine, even if you were a married couple, let's say you got married, but then you never had sex. Well, you're still not going to have a kid, right? So, so as a Christian, like, man, not only do you need to, to become a Christian, but you need to stay united. You need to abide with God. The dysfunction. So this means that something is not working properly, okay? You're having infertility issues. Maybe you have a disease that's stopping you from being able to be fertile. Whatever it may be, um, there's something that's not right. And what I would look at this from a spiritual standpoint is, man, uh, sin can cause dysfunction, can be something that hinders your ability to be able to reproduce. And so you need to start weeding that kind of stuff out of your life. Well, how do you do that? Well, you go back to union with Christ. Spend time with him. He's going to start weeding that out for you. And then finally, the last thing is immaturity. By God's grace, children cannot reproduce. Okay? It's a good thing. They're not ready to. And if you are immature in your faith, if you stay a child in your faith, then I don't think that you can expect to reproduce. Right? You need to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Grow in maturity. And as you do this, the Spirit will start working more through you to be able to reproduce in others. And you'll have that desire to do so too. So, man, I just want to say, it is awesome that we have been invited on this mission to redeem the world. Right? Like, our, our mission to go and spread God's glory, glory throughout the earth. You know, uh, when, Adam, when God created Adam and Eve, what was the, the first thing that he told them? Be fruitful and multiply, right? And so in giving them that command, what, what happened? Well, we read that Adam and Eve were special. They were created in the image of God. And so as God's special Im- image bearers, what happened is they were fruitful and multiplied. They spread that image of God throughout the earth. So you and I have been given union with Christ. We've been adopted into his family. We've been given new life. And so when we are fruitful and multiply, what do we do? We spread the glory of God throughout the earth. And that's what we're after. So I encourage you, man, be fruitful and multiply. Do this on every level, on an on individual level. You, you think about, man, who, who are the people I notice in my day-to-day life that, that I can, can help 
reproduce the life of Christ in them. Uh, on a group level, those of you that, that are doing things in ministry, you're leading a life group, whatever it may, may be, I want you to be thinking, man, how, how can I reproduce this life group? Wouldn't it be awesome if, if all of our life groups trained up leaders that were solid enough to go out and plant another life group next year? Be amazing, right? That, that means that we'd be, a, we'd be doing a good job of multiplying ourselves. Well, uh, how about on a church level, right? We, we talked a little bit about this with our leaders, this idea that, man, we don't want to just grow this church. We want to be a church that plants churches that plant churches. So, so man, like, we want to plant a church within the next couple years. We want to raise up leaders that are capable of doing that. Maybe you guys, maybe you're one of them that's listening here. But whatever it is, I pray that you would keep moving forward. Don't let that baton stop with you. You know, it was interesting when uh, Jesus spoke to Peter one time. He, he told you, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And that's it's, it's awesome, right? It kind of pumps you like, the, the gates of hell are not going to, to overcome this church, right? That's awesome, okay? Now, now, when you think about not being overcome, you generally think about it from a defensive position. But I would also say that when you think about a gate, what is a gate? It's, it's a defensive thing. The gates of hell are not going to overcome it. I have to wonder if, if Jesus is trying to communicate maybe something that's both offensive and defensive here, and that the church is offensive, that we storm the gates of hell, right? You, you think about this fact, I, I talked about this last week, how evangelism is offensive spiritual warfare, Right, that we live in a world where the enemy has bound people in darkness and in slavery to sin. And, and every time we go to share the gospel, every time we go to make a disciple, every time we multiply, we are attacking the gates of hell. Man, let's be people that keep moving forward. It's not going to overcome us. Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than any power that's out there. Let's pray. Um, God, we love you and we thank you um, for your power in us. We thank you, God, for, first for your union with us. Um, God, that, that we get to be in you and that you are in us. And Lord, I, I just, I pray that, um, man, God, you would just draw us closer to yourself. And as you do that, that we would draw others closer to you, Lord. Help us to be people that multiply. God, we pray that you would answer our prayer, that, that, that we would be people that multiply and make faithful disciples. God, teach us how to mature ourselves and how to help others mature. God, we pray that we would be a church that multiplies. Lord, we pray that many would come to know you and walk faithfully and observe your commandments because of our faithfulness. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, and we pray that your Spirit would empower us to go and to be on mission and to multiply in every area of our lives that's good. We love you, and we pray this in your Son's awesome name. Amen.